welcome to The Burning Word. I'm your host, John Perrine. It's so good that you have leaned into this new sort of ad hoc series that I'm doing. I'm not turning to a biblical book right now. I'm going to lean instead into Augustine, St. Augustine and his confessions. But before I get there, I set up an episode that was wrestling with what I called the crisis of modern identity. Now, if you get a chance, it's worth listening to. It's wrestling with some of the intellectual history, the waters that have been flowing to us that are making it so challenging and difficult to understand who we actually are. If you can stick with me one more intro episode, I'm going to turn to Augustine and the Confessions, but before I do, I want one more dive into theory and into some contemporary theology where I just want to present to you a very practical question that I've been wrestling with. The question is this, why is it if identity is so important and if increasingly we've been seeing how Christian practices like worship and the Eucharist and prayer and studying the Bible all are so vital and vibrant to a Christian faith, why is it that simply doing those practices don't always form our identities the way that they're intended? I want to break this question down. I want to let practical theologians across the contemporary scene, present their views, wrestle with it, and then I'm going to conclude with a vision of why I think Augustine can help us answer this question, how I think Augustine can bring together identity and Christian practices so that Christian practices can truly form us into who those practices intend us to be. But if all that theology doesn't sound appealing, you may want to skip ahead to the next episode. But if you have any interest in hearing why James K.A. Smith is talking to Pierre Bourdieu, why Alistair McIntyre and Stanley Hauerwas both seem right and wrong about certain aspects of practice, and what St. Augustine has to say to any of the horrifying abuses that have taken place across the 20th century history, then stick around. You're going to enjoy this one. So I just want to acknowledge from the start here, I know this episode, even this mini-series is a little bit different. Some of the logic, if you are interested in why I'm putting this together this way, is that I really, really care pastorally about continuing to move through the scriptures. But I think this question is intriguing. I've heard a lot of resonance, some interest from friends, from family, (laughs) from churches, in what I'm going after with this question. And this question is really the heart of what got me into the doctoral program at Durham is the heart of what I'm trying to wrestle with and propose. And so I hope this episode is at least going to stir some things around for you, maybe open up some aspects you weren't expecting. If again, the theology causes your eyes to roll back, forgive me. Some of it's necessary. Some of it is just the nature of the intense academic research that I'm being forced to move through. Yet hopefully as we move through some of these theologians, you're going to start to see this picture emerge of why Christian liturgy, why Christian practices, and when I say liturgy or practices, I mean an expansive and wholesome definition that primarily consists of the Eucharist, that primarily is consisting of worship, that's primarily consisting of those main practices we've been told are so important to our faith. Why these Christian practices struggle more than many of us like to acknowledge, especially more than our pastors or our priests like to acknowledge, informing us into the kind of Christians that the practices intend us to be. So let's dive in by taking you to my entry point into the conversation, and that is James K. Smith. If you've had a chance, James K. Smith is one of the more accessible philosophers you're going to find. 
He wrote this great book called You Are What You Love. He wrote an even better book called On the Road with St. Augustine. I am a big fan of James K. Smith. He's been incredibly influential for me as I was moving from a very low church expression, low church meaning uh, just like worship songs and preaching, and that's kind of it. That's all that's taking place, to a more thoughtful, practice-oriented engagement with spiritual disciplines and the liturgy that I got to work through in my time at Willow Creek working at the practice and my time in the Anglican Church. But as I've been reading James K. Smith, as I've been wrestling with him, he has this self-acknowledged problem in his call. His primary call is this, we are not just thinking creatures, we are loving creatures or desiring creatures. And he's going to borrow from St. Augustine here, which is great. But in articulating us as desiring creatures, James K. Smith is suggesting that there's this deeper sense in which our desires aren't just going to be thought about, it's not just going to be right beliefs that guide and orient our lives, but that our desires, our love, are shaped culturally in repeated liturgies or repeated practices that we do over and over and over again. So one of his great examples, he talks about the liturgy of the shopping mall, the liturgy of the shopping mall, where if you were to observe this practice as a anthropologist of religion, what you'd note is that these people stream into this magnificent building. It's one of the largest buildings in the community. Within this building, there are all of these shrines that have icons, images on the front of their entranceways, showing you the vision of the good life they intend to offer you. So if you enter this shrine, you could look like this person, you could live this kind of way, you could inhabit this kind of reality. And then when you enter into the shrine, you pick up a good, be it a product, piece of clothing, and then you exchange your sacrifice, which of course looks often like cold hard cash, or in today's society, takes place with the click of a phone and the Gnostic beep in which some of your resources, your life work, is exchanged in order that you can leave this place of worship with the good that this place of worship has now offered you. Okay, so it's brilliant, it's insightful, and it's compelling that when we participate in the worship of the shopping mall, it actually is shaping our hearts, it's shaping our desires, it's telling us a vision, a telos, a picture of what the good life looks like, and it's offering us a concrete, embodied, and practical way to achieve it by offering them money and possessing or wearing or taking on their good. So all of that is great in James K. Smith's work, and he has argued extensively around it, and I think has made a lot of traction with a lot of evangelical pastors I talk to, that uh, most are now open to the sense in which culture is forming us liturgically. Anytime we repeat a practice, when we participate in the culture, it's shaping who we are and what we love. It's shaping our identities. And the church then, in response, can offer a countercultural liturgy. It can intentionally offer us practices which resist the capitalistic liturgies, which resist the nationalistic liturgies, which resist the autonomous and independent liturgies that our society has placed for us. And the church can do this by putting forth a compelling vision of God every time we worship, by putting forth an embodied and tactile way to receive the body and blood of Jesus Christ, by putting forth an embodied and tactile way to pray together, to share goods with each other, to care for the poor together, that all of these practices become what Alan Noble has talked about as disruptive witnesses to the culture. And so as we as the community of the church participate in these practices, we are disrupting the culture around us and we are embodying the vision of the good life according to God, the vision of God himself, the triune God who is to be worshipped, the vision of Christ as we are 
little Christs walking around our cultures and societies. That is all deeply, incredibly compelling. I have given my pastoral and professional experience to sort of advancing this cause, to working it out, to asking what kind of best practices this is going to entail. And yet, as I mentioned, Smith has embedded in his proposal a problem which he is willing to acknowledge. And the problem, as he memorably coins it, I appreciate him for doing it this way because it it helps make it stick, that he calls it the Godfather problem or the Godfather dilemma. Within the Godfather, the third Godfather film to be specific, Al Pacino is going to have this scene, this memorable scene, where he's sitting in the service as a baptismal rite is taking place. And as the words of the rite are spoken over the scene, the camera focuses in on Al Pacino, who's literally participating in the liturgy as it's happening. And then the scene is going to cut as the rite is taking place, back and forth to all of these gangster images enacting violence. So people are getting shot and uh, roughing people up and all the other things that godfathers and gangsters <laughs> participate in. James K. Smith's point is that the Godfather dilemma memorably captures that here's a person, here's a family that is deeply entrenched in the rhythms and the liturgies of the church, is receiving all of the formative vision of the good life, is quite literally contrasting this image of new birth, of innocence and death to sin, with the contrasting almost identity split that is taking place in the Godfather as he is in his secular or in his professional or separate life. He's enacting violence as he is living in a way that is clearly contradictory to the vision that is being put forth. And so the question that the Godfather sort of presses upon you is how do you reconcile this vision, this vision of competing practices? Or to put it maybe more specifically, Why is it that Christian practices can be truly formative for us? Why is it that we all know there have been some practices, whether it was your youth group retreat, or maybe it was a Bible study that you did, or maybe it was your personal quiet time during that really rich and vibrant spiritual season of your life, or maybe it was a worship service with that song that was really meaningful to you at the time. Why is it that sometimes these practices are so powerful that they can actually grip our imagination and do everything James K. Smith was describing, reform our visions, turn us towards God, while at other points, the evidence would seem to suggest that simply participating in those practices, simply participating in the practice itself, does not actually form or shape our imagination, our vision, or our loves. Memorably, and this is just anecdotal, I'm going to back it up with some contemporary theology. Anecdotally, the easiest critique of James K. Smith is to point to the Roman Catholic Church, which has a number of vibrant communities. I love my Catholic brothers and sisters, and if you are listening and you're part of the Roman Catholic Church, bless you, and I'm glad that you're here, and I'm glad we're having this conversation. But as most Roman Catholics would tell you, simply participating in the rhythms of the Mass does not guarantee deeply formed countercultural saints, right? This is the struggle. Uh, Another great example to point the finger back towards my own heritage and tradition, the, the mainstream Protestant tradition, which has all of the doctrinal foundations of Luther and Calvin, and actually has incredibly rich liturgies. I mean, Luther's catechism is extraordinary, yet these traditions, particularly the most liturgical, meaning the most deeply ancient liturgical mainline denominations, are consistently dwindling, 
are consistently struggling to capture any sort of countercultural vision, and as evangelicals have long attested, if anything, the liturgy can at times seem to deform a person's desire, can actually become so mundane and root and ritualized that it is emptied and becomes devoid of all meaning. So what I really deeply respect about James K. Smith is that he acknowledges this problem. There is a godfather dilemma when it comes to Christian practices, and where I'm trying to go with this to connect it to the last episode is if our crisis in modern identity is this crisis of how we're meant to form our identities as Christians, I think the impulse the last 20 years has been that our identity can be formed through Christian practices and a return to liturgy. I have participated in these conversations. I have espoused that sort of vision. I have worked towards it and I've experimented with it. And while I think, I think we're onto something that modern identity needs tactile, embodied, and practical help, while I think evangelicals have lost much of the practical vision of worship, the formative vision of desire within worship, in the way that we're just jamming tunes, big anthems over and over again into the desires of our people and then preaching 45 minutes or 60 minutes or whatever else we're doing topically and thematically covering over the scriptures. I agree that that is not helpful when it comes to the crisis of modern identity that we're going to need to do more. But I have seen and am concerned that a wholesale embrace of liturgy, as sometimes has happened, as was happening in my own journey towards the Anglican tradition, where you say, if we can just get over to liturgical, if we can just start participating in liturgical communities, well, then we'll finally be truly and deeply forming our deepest hearts and desires. I'm not sure that that's actually true. And there is a concern that the over-grandiosity of that vision, the over-grandiosity of how powerful and formative practices are in and of themselves, how wonderful and refreshing it feels to be told if you just participate in communion in the Eucharist every week, well, then you're going to become more and more deeply counterculturally formed in a vision of the good life. I don't think that's actually true. And so we're selling many of our liturgical communities a false message that is going to inevitably result in the same struggles that our Roman Catholic and our mainline Protestant and Anglican traditions have struggled with if we don't at least listen and lean into the challenge that practices do not always form, that sometimes practices fail. So where else might we look to talk about this question, this issue? Where is this coming from? If I spent the whole last episode talking about modern identity, the streams that flow into modern identity, why is it that evangelicals are suddenly talking so much about liturgy? Well, one of the main theologians who's been deeply significant for wonderful reasons has been Stanley Hauerwas. So Hauerwas studied at Yale. He studied under George Lindbeck and Hans Frey. He was involved in this new renewal movement in mainline liberal theology, mainline liberal Protestant theology. And without getting into all the specifics, George Lindbeck and Hans Frey in particular were really interested in cultural practices that had the power to shape identities, that this was in fact the great response to the overly interior, the overly individualized, and the overly self-oriented, either expressive or cognitive approach to beliefs and to theology. And so Hauerwas took this and he ran with it. And in many ways, I mean, he's, if you get a chance to read Hauerwas, he's incredibly compelling. He's incredibly thought-provoking. He's accessible. He talks in this way that's really down-to-earth, is practical. He's living this on the ground. He picks up some of this late Mennonite, John Howard Yoder, pacifism and radical nature of how countercultural Jesus was and the countercultural community that Jesus was forming. And then Hauerwas just preaches over and over and over again 
the church, when she embodies the practices of Jesus, becomes the countercultural witness to the world. He in arguably, though the sources run deep beyond Hauerwas, he is the great proponent, the great articulator of this what's called a post-liberal theological vision, that if the church returns to her practices, returns to the practices of Jesus returns to the practices that are narrated in the scripture, then the church, as she lives out this narrative by practicing the way of Jesus, is going to be a resistant witness, is going to even transform potentially the society that she witnesses to. So, I mean, that's it. That's the heart. That's the vision. That's where James K. Smith was pulling some of this from. Smith and Hauerwas are friends. They're connected in what they're doing. Smith was trying to deepen Hauerwas a bit in exploring desire, but ultimately they're congruent. These are similar visions. If you want some good theology, Hauerwas was infamously described by the Times as America's theologian around 2004, and it's because he genuinely has been that significant, that influential, and that worthy of consideration. However, in the practical theology world, well, first just a quick side note, this emerging discipline, particularly in the UK, is called practical theology. I mean, if there's been any sign of how significant and influential practices are to the ongoing discussions today about how the church is meant to be the church, is that there's now a whole sub-discipline called practical theology that has an interesting history rooted in sociology and psychology. But in practical theology, theologians have taken up Hauerwas's challenge and have started studying not just the ideas of the church, not just the theology of the church, not just the doctrines of the church, but have actually started exploring the practices of the church. This is fascinating to me. I love the discipline of practical theology in that it takes seriously the question, not just of what the church believes, but how the church is practicing. One of the primary ways they do it is by picking up the tools of sociology going to actual congregations on the ground, and then writing up reports about what they're discovering. And then even more interestingly, how those practices are actually forming the people participating in the practices. So two fascinating practical theologians that are definitely worth reading. You've probably never heard of them before. One is Christian Sharon, S-C-H-A-R-E-N. Christian Sharon wrote his sort of major practical theology work on these three congregations in Atlanta. And as Sharon went to Atlanta, he looked at a African-American Episcopal Methodist Church. He looked at a very sort of conservative and wealthy Presbyterian Church. And then he looked at a pretty theologically liberal and radical Roman Catholic Church in the Atlanta metro area. And he did this deep analysis of all of the practices that were taking place in these three communities, noticing interesting themes that emerge when you compare and contrast how each of these communities were worshiping against and alike to the other. And yet his main conclusion, controversially, that was meant as an explicit challenge to Stanley Hauerwas, is that Sharon says, after spending months with these congregations, what he observes is that the practices of the church are not doing any sort of transformative work for the people, in the sense that as he did these extensive interviews, it's not that the practices were forming the people into a pattern or trajectory or vision that they weren't already currently living. Instead, it was that people came to the church and participated in the practices that conformed, so literally affirmed and recognized and reinforced the beliefs, the theology, the vision, and the worldview that a person already had. This is definitely an interesting challenge, and it's a bit of a rejoinder to James K. Smith, this real sense in which the grappling that must be done as a pastor, as a practical theologian, is that while we want practices to reshape the desires, the loves of our hearts, 
There's probably a sense in which we're only choosing practices we already want to do, and the practices we gravitate towards are the practices that are most familiar and therefore already affirm that which we already believe. The study by Sharon was followed up by another really great practical theologian named Nicholas Healy. Healy is a Roman Catholic. Sharon is a Lutheran, I want to say. So very different perspectives, but a lot of alignment between the two that, that Healy put forth this huge call in early 2000 that he thought the church needed more practical studies. They needed more sociology. After 14 years of sort of watching how these studies unfolded, watching how various practical theologians were picking up aspects of what Hauerwas was suggesting and envisioning and were even putting forth how powerful and central and vital practices were to the church, Healy ended up writing this blistering critique of Hauerwas called Hauerwas a very critical introduction. And his problem is not with Hauerwas's vision. In fact, Healy loves Hauerwas's vision. Healy, as a Roman Catholic, says this has been the vision of the church the whole time. The problem for Healy, though, is that there's no place in which this is actually living itself out on the ground. Healy argues with Hauerwas that if Hauerwas is being honest, there's not anywhere you can really point to where the church, simply by doing the practices of the church, is having some sort of profound transformation of its congregants, like, you know, every week to participate in the sacraments or the Eucharist or something is like magical. It's profound. It, it utterly changes your vision of the good life. In actuality, Nicholas Healy argues, the more work that's being done by sociologists of churches like Christian Sharon, the more we're recognizing that <laughs> these practices are just really confirming. They're not necessarily transforming. They're kind of doing whatever the person already believes they should be doing. And Healy points to the study done in San Francisco of these six different Roman Catholic congregations. And he notes that each congregation has a different theology. So one congregation is known as being more LGBTQ affirming. One congregation is very family oriented. Young family has a strong kids program. One congregation is very small and elderly. It has a very old community that's sort of dwindling away. And then another congregation is just sort of there as an urban professional transient in the metro area of San Francisco. As Healy looks at these six congregations, he just presses to Stanley Hauerwas, listen, all six of them are doing the same practices. All six of them are doing the Eucharist every Sunday. All six of them are largely using the same worship songs. All six of them are receiving the same 20 to 25 minute homily from the priest. And the reality is each of them have radically different theological agendas. And the truth is, if you interview any Roman Catholic in the San Francisco metro area, what they'd tell you is they choose the Roman Catholic church they want to go to, not based on a sense of proximity or duty, but on a sense of what seems most satisfying and fulfilling to them. And if we are being honest, as my wife Jen and I have wrestled with this over the years, as we've had a number of points where you get this open-ended invitation to reconsider church. Where should I go to church? What What's the next step for church? Is Which church do I want to attend. What you realize is that you start sifting through all of these deeply held preferences and even restrictions, right? You didn't even know you had. So it's not uncommon for you to probably have different preferences than me, but for us to say something like, I just could never go to a church that doesn't practice communion. Oh, I, I could never participate in a community that speaks in tongues. Oh, well, I could never participate in a community that doesn't have a vibrant sense of worship in their community. Well, I could never participate in a community that doesn't have a profound preacher. I mean, preaching is so important to me. 
And what you see, what Healy's challenging Hauerwas in is ultimately church work is so preferential. It's so capitalistic in that it is a good or commodity for us to consume. And there's just almost no way to counteract. I sense Healy would say the same thing if I tried to interview him. I don't know what the answer is to that. I think there's just a real sense in which we are preferential creatures who happen to live in an extraordinary time where churches are built around our preferences. And so to these critiques, it's tough. It's tough. I think Hauerwas rightly, if you're paying attention to practical theology, has been knocked off of his horse just a little bit, even if he still has compelling things to share. There's two other quick fields to point out to you. One is the heavy, necessary, but very challenging conversation that guys like Willie James Jennings and Brian Bantam have been highlighting around racial history. Willie Jennings has an extraordinary book called The Christian Imagination. It would arguably be one of the most powerful theologies written in the last 20 years, I would say. It'd be on my list. Jennings is arguing that as you go back to the slave trade as it originated in Africa, the horror was the Spanish who justified the slave trade through their Christian practices. So when you look at the Spanish kingdom, it was an intensely Roman Catholic, practicing Roman Catholic kingdom. Everyone involved and was included in the practicing priests, the bishops, you know, like everybody was on board with this system of slavery that the Spanish initiated, along, of course, with many others. The English and the Dutch are certainly not guilt-free, as were the French. It's just easy to point out, as Willie Jennings does, that theology, but specifically theology ingrained by practice, was endorsing, was solidifying, was reaffirming the practice, the clearly countercultural, anti-Christian vision of enslaving an image bearer of God for the purpose of capitalized gain. I mean, this is terrible. Yet Willie Jennings is empathetic enough that he argues it was not the practices themselves, but what he calls a misshapen theological imaginary. So practices that blended with the cultural currents of their day that were swirling around a complex set of factors, including European jostling and enlightenment ideology that was starting to bubble up. And his argument is that it is actually theology that's needed to counteract misshapen practices, practices like Christians enslaving others. And so his he's not trying to throw the baby out with the bathwater that Christianity is some sort of oppressive religion. Instead, his argument is practices alone are not enough. Practices clearly are not enough to counteract cultural visions that can often co-opt and coerce Christian theology into achieving its own aims or agendas. This is Similarly affirmed by Brian Bantam, who has a very insightful and piercing book called Redeeming Mulatto. He talks about the practices on Christian plantations of biracial children and biracial slaves, the mixed identity, the mixed blessings, the corruptive practices that reinforced inferior senses of self to mulatto people, even as they also enacted a distinguishing of mulattoes from their own racialized identities that they could have experienced belonging with in the plantation communities. So just a heartbreaking but piercing insight into racial history and how practices failed the church in racial history. And if that was not enough, two final ones worth highlighting. One is William Cavanaugh. William Cavanaugh would also be up there. If you ask a lot of guys, their favorite practical theology sweeping piece in the last 20 years. So in his book, Torture and Eucharist, Cavanaugh describes the church's response to torture and disappearance 
in Chile, specifically the Roman Catholic Church's response. Under the general Pinochet's regime, where he enacted a bunch of terrifying policies, both Kavanaugh ironically studied under Stanley Hauerwas. So again, I just want to be kind to Hauerwas here. I, I love Hauerwas. I think everybody really enjoys Hauerwas. This is the sort of working out of Hauerwas's vision, some pushback from someone like Kavanaugh, who noted that the Roman Catholic Church failed to hold a public theology that was against the practices of torture and disappearance because they were trying to play politically nice with the, the terrifying regime that was there for an extended period of time. Similarly, Ephraim Radner, he too is fascinated by the genocide that takes place in Rwanda that largely happens under a Christianized state and the silence of the church in their brutal unity, how their politics did not translate into a countercultural witness because of the practices, the liturgical practices of the church in the society. And that's not getting into, of course, a number of other historical avenues you could wander down. I mean, as soon as you hit religion and violence, if you search religion and violence in global political contexts, the historical examples are almost unending. So my final book for you that summarizes these concerns is a recent book by Lauren Winner. Winner is a professor down at Duke, where Hauerwas again is located. So Winner and Hauerwas would know each other. This is sort of a intermural conversation between Winner and Hauerwas, and yet her title is going to set up the point I'm trying to highlight in this overview of practical theology. Winner calls her book The Dangers of Christian Practice. The Dangers of Christian Practice. And insightfully, I really enjoyed Winner's book. It's an easy access point if you're interested in this conversation. She, in her first chapter, opens up a theology of what she calls wayward gifts. Wayward gifts. And so she argues that something like the sacraments or even just the practices of the church are gifts from God. They are actually gifts that God has given to form us in particular ways, to reassure us, to comfort us, to encourage us. Something like communion especially is done in remembrance of Jesus, draws his presence close to us, allows us to participate in eating his flesh and drinking his blood. It is a profound mystery, and yet it is there throughout the history of the church as the reliable, steady, I mean, sometimes neglected and ignored, sometimes pushed to the sides, but always resurfacing heartbeat of the church that we gather, we break bread, we serve wine, and we remember. Yet, Winner argues that this conversation around Christian practices often neglects to acknowledge a theology of sin in which human agents, who are themselves corrupted and corruptible, can cause damage to the gifts themselves. So as she's sort of talking to Willie Jennings around racial history and what was taking place in the African slave trade, She's going to say the gifts became damaged. There was actually characteristic damage that began to malform the people based on misshapen theological imaginaries, and gifts began to be misused. Sin in human agents took otherwise good gifts from God and corrupted them to their own means and ends. So, whew, hopefully that's interesting. Hopefully that stirs the waters of an immense conversation taking place right now theologically. I want to know, as I wrestle with that sweep and scope of the dangers of Christian practice, as Lauren Winters describes it, I want to know, how are we meant to hold the reality that we cannot be formed in Christ-like image without some form of practices? I think 
if I've sold any conversation short. It's the embodied, tactile, repetitive, and habituated sense of self that goes all the way back to Aristotle, who surely saw this correctly, but that extends all the way through to behavioral psychology, that you are what you eat, you are what you love. How do we embrace the formative power of practices while acknowledging the dangers, acknowledging the failures of practice that have sometimes assured us that we somehow are participating within the the commune, within the goodness, within the people, the city of God, when in actuality we are wandering off the path, we are pursuing our own aims, we are causing damage in Jesus's name through the practices that we are enacting. So if that's the question, where do we go? What hope do we have in exploring this question? I will not attend in any sort of hubris to tell you that I have the answer to this, but I think I have a trajectory that's intriguing, a trajectory that does go back to St. Augustine that really appreciates James K. Smith and Howard Ross's proposals, and yet is going to argue that there's been this loss, I think, in exploring the social communal realities of the church. If you're paying attention to any of the trends theologically, Christianity has been so resistant and disappointed with the individualism that American Christianity, that British Christianity, that Western Christianity has enacted, that there can be this quick impulse response to flee individualism, to turn away from the individual, and to focus instead on society, societal forces, communal pressures, communal politics. While I certainly would acknowledge and emphasize the importance of communal realities, my hunch is that the answer to this question is going to rest in individuals' hearts. So I'm not trying to minimize the communal realities to this. I think they are there and need to be surfaced. But there's this incredible passage in Jeremiah that has haunted me for a long time. Jeremiah 17 verses 9 to 10. Jeremiah is reflecting in the exile on the waywardness of the people. In fact, you could argue a people who have themselves been participating in religious practices, in worshiping at the temple, who have become deeply encultured in the scriptures, certainly in the way of Jewish living that God had offered to them as a gift in the Torah. And yet, in their practices, they had failed. They had missed the heart of God. And as Jeremiah is trying to analyze and diagnose this, his response is to say, Jeremiah 17, 9 to 10, the heart, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. In fact, the Hebrew there is incurable, is unknowably complex. And so his next question is going to be, who can understand it? Who can understand the heart? Now here's where I am moved. Jeremiah immediately responds that the Lord speaks and the Lord is going to say, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruits of his deeds. So my suspicion then is that there's something about the heart. There's something about the center of yourself. The heart in Hebrew thought was the lev. It wasn't just the beating organ. The heart was often referred to as the deepest internal sense of yourself. This is the core of your identity. This is the well, as Proverbs 3.23 would famously say, from which the waters of life flow. So if you have access to your heart, if you're connected to your heart, if your heart is aligned with God, 
then life, shalom, peace, goodness, justice, righteousness are going to flow. The heart is where all of the goodness of life is to be had. And yet, yet clearly, the heart has become deceived. The heart is actually a mystery to itself. The heart performs this incredibly complex role as you trace a theology of redemption across the Old Testament where God continually comes back to the sense in which even if you're participating in religious practices, your heart can be far from God. Your heart is that which is almost impossible to know by yourself and yet which you desperately need, which you need to even be cured if you're going to draw into the presence and proximity of the living God. And so how, how could any of us have hope for what formation, for what worship, for what truth, for what identity could entail. Well, the Lord says, the Lord searches and knows your heart. The Lord is the one who tests and sees your heart. The Lord will be key if you are going to reclaim and reform your heart, but that doesn't answer the question, does it? It doesn't address the heart work, the soul work, the inner self work that's going to be required. And here is where I think we need a guide. Here is where I think we need some deep help to reframe and reorient the conversation for us. If there's any direction I hope pastorally we could go, it would be to recover the centrality of the heart or to use another term, the centrality of the self in Christian practices, the agency, the interior agency of the self. And again, I'm wary here that I am not attempting to reduce or collapse pastoral practices back into a me and Jesus, buddy, buddy, just hope Jesus does something strange within our hearts. But I think we've lost, for a number of reasons, the sense of self, the centrality of the self, the agency and interiority of the self when it comes to the formative work of a practice. And so I've got more to say here about Alistair McIntyre and Pierre Bourdieu. They both have been incredibly influential in practical theology, and I think there is some deep philosophical wrestling that needs to take place with some of their theories around agency and practice, even though both are profoundly helpful. I think this then is where to tee up my next episode, to tee up where I hope we're going. If you've stuck with me this far, we're on to something good here. I think Augustine is actually the, the guide we need, the guide we've been looking for. And James K. Smith is right here. He's pointing us back to Augustine because Augustine is going to stand at the beginning of this emerging articulation of the heart, the centrality of the self in Christian theology, and yet arguably... Arguably, the thing that Augustine offers that's often missed, that maybe even James K. Smith fails to reckon with, is something that another Augustine scholar named John Cavendini wrote this really important article called The Darkest Enigma, Reconsidering the Self in Augustine's Thought. Cavendini is going to say, the self in Augustine is much more disturbing and mysterious, more exciting and hopeful, and more treacherous and riskier. Someone who is self-aware is aware not of a self, but of a struggle, a brokenness, a gift a process of healing, a resistance to healing, an emptiness, a reference that impels one not to concentrate on oneself in the end, but on that to which one's self-awareness propels one, to God. Someone who is properly self-aware is aware of a transformation, a reconfiguring, a recreation of an identity from nothing, of a becoming better, and not of a stable entity that endures as a private inner space or object. So essentially what Cavendini is saying, if there's any insight here, if there's any payoff for this episode, it's the sense in which the reason why Christian practices are failing is because we often place the emphasis of formation in the practice on the practice itself 
in some sort of mechanistic or externalized motion that we hope we can rely upon to say, if you extend your hands out, if you receive the bread and the wine, if you lift your hands in the air to praise, if you open your Bible for 15 minutes, then the practice will do all of the heavy lifting, the formation of the self for you. Instead, my contention that I know many of these guys would not be resistant to at all as they have been wrestling with the dangers and downfalls of Christian practice is that pastorally, pastorally, the real work that needs to be done is not just equipping people with Christian practices, but is offering people an orientation to their inner self, which is both, and this is the tricky part, and this is where we actually need to do theological lifting here, is both deceptive and difficult to know. Cavendini describes it as an enigma, and Augustine here is going to be particularly helpful because he constantly is crying out, I don't know who I actually am. I don't know that on my own I can actually attain control or form myself. I am in a relationship, a posture of dependency on God if myself is going to emerge, if my heart is going to become engaged. That's the, the challenge and profoundness, and I realize it's not easy to hold what Augustine is saying here, but it's worth some work, which is what we're going to try to do as we move through his confessions. But then equally, if the self is mysterious, if there is an enigma here, then the self is ultimately knowable and formable through this interrelatedness with God, and the practices become the vehicle of the self being explored, the self being pulled forth, the heart emerging, the heart's sickness and woundedness being examined, treated, maybe even cured, depending on what we're saying and arguing here. And I think what we're trying to do is move to a far more thoughtful and nuanced sense of the self, interior sense of agency, when it comes to engaging Christian practices with the warning from the get-go. Hey, just because you participate in this, it doesn't mean that your heart is going to be engaged. And so make sure, make sure when you go to do this, you're going to need to examine your heart, but it's not going to be just you. You're going to need God to examine your heart with you through the practices that you are engaging. Now, I'm a realist enough to acknowledge some of you. It may not seem like I've made any ground, but my hope, my hope here is that I think practically, practically, this is going to invite I hope it invites you to explore not just the mechanics of a practice, not just the how-to of a practice, but to actually bring your heart along with you every time you engage a practice. And for pastors to say more forthrightly and insistently, if you don't bring your heart into this practice, we're not going to get any further than if you had failed to do the practice in the first place. In fact, look around. Plenty of people are enacting Christian rituals and are fully submerged in the cultural currents of the cultural liturgies that have equally shaped, if not more so shaped, their theological imaginaries. And that is not a statement of pride. Instead, it actually is a profound call to humility that all of us are a bit of a mystery to ourselves. All of us are probably leaning on practices in ways to try to reaffirm and ease the balm of our anxiety when it comes to God. And yet, instead of having to be anxious, the scriptures invite us in. They say, pick up the practices. Don't neglect Christian practice just because Christian practices can fail. But when you do the Christian practices, bring your heart along with you. Confess yourself, your heart before God, and invite God to re-speak, to speak a word of reconfiguration to the inner sense of who you are. That's where we're going to go in this ongoing study of Augustine and confessions. I, in the next episode, I want to take you to Augustine's work. I want to take you into it. I love that so few 
of my contemporary peers as I talk to friends, even some pastors, even bless her, my wife who has suffered so much, Augustine. I love that so few of us have had a chance to really sit with the confessions of Augustine, which is one of the great texts. It's just an incredible book on a number of levels. And if I can do anything through these next couple episodes, it would be to get you as excited about Augustine's insights into the heart that I think are really building off of the Apostle Paul, are pulling from the scriptures, and yet I would arguably say are, to James K. Smith's point, the best guide we have when it comes to exploring and examining your own heart. So if you're ready to do a deep dive into your heart, if you're ready to bring your heart with you into Christian practice, if you are ready to face the crisis of modern identity and seek to deepen your sense of self in God, knowable through God, of an entity that is aware of a reconfiguring and a recreation from nothing into a Christ-likeness, then come with us as we explore the confessions of Augustine. This has been John Perrine with The Burning Word. Until next time, grace and peace.